Just a warning, Classified, the podcast, may contain content which is distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode three of Classified the Podcast. I am your host, Catherine Ray Robinson, and I'm here with our producer, Simon Shipley. On today's show, we will be talking about the tragic and controversial case of Kaylee Anthony. Then we'll find out my favorite documentaries and true crime TV shows in a question and answer. But coming up next, Pollen. It sounds really boring, but when it comes to crime, it definitely isn't. When I was studying forensics, I learned all about crime scene investigation and how to use forensic evidence to solve crimes. I studied DNA, ballistics, blood and handwriting analysis, and a bunch of other cool stuff. But one subject I looked into that I hadn't given too much thought to before was how pollen can be used to solve crimes. This field is known as forensic palynology, which is the study of pollen and its relationship to crime. I promise it's a lot more interesting than it sounds. I just want to briefly touch on a key principle in forensics, and it's known as Lockhart's principle of exchange. Basically, the gist is that whenever two people come in contact with one another, a physical transfer occurs. Hair, skin cells, fibres or any material can be transferred from one person to another person. This transfer of materials creates what's known as trace evidence. This exchange is basically a silent witness to crime. So how does pollen relate to forensics? Well, Pollen is fairly common and it's extremely tough. That's one really important thing to know. So it's super durable. So much so that paleontologists can actually examine fossilized pollen grains from prehistoric times. That's how crazy long they can last. Pollen grains are kind of like the fingerprint or signature of an area. This is because pollen and spore samples are very specific to certain types of vegetation, meaning they occur in different areas, but they are also specific to a certain time because different plant species flower in different seasons throughout the year. So pollen samples can get caught pretty much everywhere. Hair, fur, clothing, in your nose, in your throat, in your car, furniture, filters, everywhere, any place you can think of, pollen can attach to. Even after you've washed and dried your clothes heaps of times, pollen remains attached and it can still be detected under a microscope. So pollen attaches easily, but it's really, really hard to get rid of completely. Given all of these variables and how specific the structure of pollen is, we can see that they make really good markers for linking people and objects to different locations. And obviously this makes samples really helpful and sometimes case-breaking for investigators. A great local case in Australia which used forensic palynology was the Graham Thorne case. If you haven't heard of it, 
Graham was an eight-year-old boy who was kidnapped, held for ransom and murdered a month after his parents won the lottery to fund the building of the Opera House in 1960. His body was discovered in a dense bushland area and a key clue was red mortar and seed fragments which were found wedged in the blanket he was shoved in and where he was dumped. They ended up tracing the seeds to two really unusual looking cypress bushes. This then got told to postal workers. The investigators filled in all of the postal workers and were asked to take notes of homes which had these types of bushes. This was super successful and ultimately led investigators to where Thorne was murdered and ultimately to his murderer, Stephen Bradley, which is kind of insane, all because of some pollen samples. In 2017 in the US, another case which was super prominent was the body of a toddler was discovered in a plastic bag and it had washed up on the beach. This little girl was known as Baby Doe because her identity wasn't known at the time of her discovery. Forensic paleontologist Andrew Lawrence, one of the only experts in the US who is highly trained in this field, was asked to examine for pollens on her body. Her clothes and the blanket she was wrapped in were vacuumed, dissolved in chemicals and went through an analysis and they found a very unique pattern of pollen. 32 different types of pollen actually was found, including oak, pine and other super specific flora, which was native. And it showed she lived in a super specific area of Boston. And this information proved super useful and they narrowed their suspect pool super closely and it played a major role in helping to not only ID her but to get a conviction. So pollen evidence isn't considered a wishy-washy facet of science and its role in criminal investigation has actually become super valued. So that is one of the many ways that a crime can be solved using forensics. But coming up, we're going to be looking into the tragic case of Kaylee Anthony. I want to have a chat about a case that I recently stumbled across because I don't think there's been huge publicity about this case outside of the US, and I think it definitely deserves it. This is the case of Kaylee Anthony, who was a two-year-old girl that vanished in June 2008 in Orlando, Florida. Kaylee lived with her mother, Casey Anthony, and her grandparents, George and Cindy Anthony. On the 15th of July, 2008, Kaylee was reported missing through a 911 call made by her grandmother, Cindy. Cindy said that she hadn't seen her granddaughter Kaylee in 31 days and that her daughter Casey's car smelled like a dead body. There's something wrong. I found my daughter's car today and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. When Kaylee's grandmother Cindy confronted her daughter about where Kaylee was, she gave her heaps of different explanations as to her whereabouts but eventually confessed that she too hadn't seen Kaylee in weeks. Obviously, this all seemed very suspicious to investigators and they thought something was definitely wrong because no mother would wait 31 days to report 
their child missing. When police questioned her, she lied to them and said that Kaylee had been kidnapped by one of her nannies and she had spent the last month trying to locate her without getting the police involved, which sounds super sus. Casey was indicted by a grand jury fairly quickly on the counts of first-degree murder, manslaughter of a child and several counts of providing false information to the police and then they arrested her. In December of the same year, so about six months later, skeletal remains were found wrapped in a baby's blanket inside a garbage bag in a dense wooded area. She was incredibly decomposed and barely resembled a human being by this point um, and it was just remnants of a body. These remains were confirmed to be Kaylee Anthony. One really sketchy item that really plagues this case is duct tape. Investigators reported duct tape around Kaylee's skull and around her mouth. Dr Jan Garavalia, who was the medical examiner on the case, said that to her the duct tape indicated a homicide, but it was ultimately ruled as a death by undetermined means because... In her defence, the remains were so decomposed that they weren't able to give too many clues as to what happened and the duct tape was sort of a standalone piece of evidence. Forensic experts did an air sampling procedure in the boot of Casey's car and that turned out to have compounds that were consistent with a decompositional event, whatever that means. It basically just means that there was something decomposing in the boot of her car. They also interestingly found traces of chloroform in the trunk of the car, which, I mean, that's abnormal to absolutely anyone. (laughs) Casey went to trial and the prosecution sought the death penalty because they believed that Casey just wanted to ditch any parental responsibilities, so she decided to murder her daughter. There were also some very strange things that Casey did when her daughter was supposedly missing and taken by the nanny. Like she went to a tattoo place and got Bella Vita, which means beautiful life, tattooed on her left shoulder. The prosecution argued that no sane mother who has a missing daughter that's been supposedly kidnapped, according to her story, would run off and get that kind of tattoo on her shoulder. Investigators also looked into the computers inside the family home and there was a bunch of suspicious internet history and someone in the house, they don't know who, had Googled on how to strangle someone seamlessly. And But, I mean, who doesn't Google that? I mean, I don't know what to tell you. The defence team came out, along with Casey, with their version of events. They claimed that Kaylee died accidentally by drowning in the family swimming pool and that George Anthony, Kaylee's grandfather, disposed of the body. Just a quick little tangent here. Let's say this is exactly what happened. Kaylee accidentally drowned in the pool. They panicked, disposed of the body hastily because they didn't know what to do and didn't think people would believe that it was an accident. Even if we do run with that outlandish theory, it doesn't explain the duct tape. Why would you put duct tape on a person who drowned? What would be the purpose of that? It just seems really bizarre to me. The defence tried to convince the jury that Casey lied about what really happened to Kaylee due to an unstable home and the fact that her father was sexually abusive. He was put on the stand and denied this profusely and denied any involvement in Kaylee's disappearance and murder at all. And the defence wasn't really able to prove any of these allegations. 
Surprisingly, on July 5th of 2011, the jury found Casey not guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and aggravated manslaughter of a child. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Have you reached a verdict? It was a swift and shocking end to a courtroom drama that has transfixed the nation. As to the charge of first-degree murder, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. 25-year-old Casey Anthony found not guilty on every major count relating to the death of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee. Anthony did not get off scot-free. The jury did find her guilty on four counts of lying to police, but they're just misdemeanors, punishable by a year in jail each. By all accounts, there is no question this verdict is a victory for Casey Anthony's defense team. Ten years later now, she's still out, she's free, and many people have really struggled with that. This case drew fairly strong comparisons at the time and later with the O.J. Simpson case because both involved awful deaths, a huge amount of media coverage and very controversial acquittals. So many people were shocked that she was acquitted of all the homicide charges. The jury said that they found her not guilty because they couldn't prove the circumstances under which Kaylee was killed. The defence, however, spun a lot of theories about how she drowned. They said, oh, the gate was open and the ladder was down and the door was left unlocked and she lacked water and all these inferences, when really there was no evidence that any of these things took place and it was sort of just a narrative that they spun and the jury sort of stuck with. The only positive to come out of this really, really tragic case was that many bills were proposed and eventually passed in several US states, and they were known as Kaylee's Law, which makes it a felony for a parent or legal guardian to fail to report a missing child when they knew that the child was potentially in some kind of danger. So this was sort of the only positive that came out of this case, really. How is cause, manner, and mechanism of death different? And what are my recommendations for true crime documentaries and TV shows? We'll be answering your questions up next. The first question in this episode's Q&A is what is the best true crime show slash documentary you have watched? This is a really tough question, but I'll try and narrow it down to a couple for you. The first one is The Keepers. Baltimore has always been a quintessentially Catholic city. The priests were the authority. Whatever they told you to do, you did. The city has its level of corruption. The Keepers is a Netflix-funded show, and it's about the murder of a nun and the potential cover-up of this murder by the Catholic Church. And it kind of uncovers a bunch of other really dodgy things that happen in this school where this nun was a teacher, and it goes into a bunch of different priests and characters and interviews with families, and it's super detailed and it's really creepy and eerie and I hadn't watched too much about the Catholic Church and priests and all of that stuff, so it was really eye-opening for me and it probably would be for you as well. I believe Kathy Sesnick was killed because she was going to talk about what went on at Keo. There's an on-the-record public story of what happened to Sister Kathy, and then there's the world beneath. 
there were other people brought in, local business owners, politicians that were part of this network. This goes bigger and deeper than we can imagine. The story is not the nun's killing. The story is the cover-up of the nun's story. The second one I loved was Evil Genius, the world's most diabolical bank heist. We got him out of the car and cuffed him. I started hearing a beat. His eyes just got real wide. A potential hostage sent into the bank with an explosive around their neck. Something like this had never happened before in the history of the FBI. This show can also be found on Netflix. It got amazing reviews and it was super different to anything that I had watched before. It was basically about an attempted bank robbery in Pennsylvania in the States. Uh, it was really, really, really highly publicized at the time. And it was meant to be a robbery, but it went wrong and it ended up being a murder. There was a delivery driver who was carrying out the robbery and he had a collar bomb locked around his neck and he thought that it wasn't a real bomb and it turned out it was. And I'm not gonna spoil too much of what took place, but it wasn't good. <laughs> they eventually arrested someone for the delivery man's death, but there was a lot more to the robbery than meets the eye. And that's what the show is about. So if you're looking for something to binge watch, there's only four episodes and that is definitely one I would recommend. The man told that he was forced to rob the bank. The FBI believed that whoever built the caller is patient and secretive. Brian Wells said he was supposed to go on a scavenger hunt. And he was supposed to go from point A to point B to point C, where the keys would be given him to release this bomb. This made worldwide news. The purpose of the pizza bomber plot? Money. How could this happen? Who's the mastermind? Please, with your emergency. There's a woman that you might want to question. He's the one that did it. He's and he's co-conspirators. The last one I love and I think you would probably love too is The Confession Tapes, which Third Time's a Charm is also on Netflix. These um police officers told me that I blacked out. They made me believe I killed someone I loved. And I didn't do it. The Confession Tapes is about when a confession isn't a confession, if that makes sense. So if it's involuntary, coerced or forced out of someone, they got a bunch of people who had what seemed to be clean-cut confessions to a lot of really bad crimes. And it turns out they confessed to crimes that they didn't actually commit. It's a really fascinating premise for a show and I really loved it and I think you would too. People don't ever want to believe that someone would confess to a crime they didn't do. I don't know any detail because I don't believe I did it yet. But it happens all the time. You're going to confess to setting this woman on fire. And you didn't do it? No way. I want to apologize to the family for what I've done. He confessed he's going to prison. Isn't that the way it works in America? Justice has been served. We're going to have her spend the rest of her life in prison. All of us could falsely confess to something. If you got to keep your eyes closed while you say it's safe. It might take you a week. Let's go right now. It might take me an hour. Say it. But we're all going to have our breaking point. 
Okay, so next question. How is cause, manner, and mechanism of death different? You may or may not have heard of these terms before, but I will try and differentiate them the best I can. When I studied forensics, I learned about this type of stuff. And the reason someone dies is known as the cause of death. So this could be a stroke, a physical injury, or maybe a heart attack. If someone was killed, their cause of death might be shooting, strangulation, or suffocation. So that's the reason someone dies is their cause of death. The manner of death is broken down into four official categories. So on TV shows, you might have heard them say a manner of death when they're performing an autopsy or something like that. These are natural, accidental, suicidal or homicidal. And there's sort of this unspoken fifth one, which is undetermined because that can also technically be listed on a death certificate. So it kind of is classed as a manner of death. Lastly, the mechanism of death describes the actual change in the body which causes someone to die. So if someone is shot to death, the mechanism of death could be blood loss, or if you die of a heart attack, then the mechanism of death might be pulmonary arrest. They might not seem like really huge differences, but they definitely are in the world of forensics. On the next episode of Classified the Podcast, we're going to be looking at psychics and their role in true crime. Are they legit or are they a scam? Also, what is the first thing you would do if you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit? Scary stuff. You'll hear my answer in the next episode. We'll also be taking a look at the bizarre and tragic death of Phoebe Hanshook, a 24-year-old girl who died falling down a garbage chute. It's really suspicious and you really need to know about this case. Yes.